Welcome to the Living Library Radio Podcast Project. This project aims to share human stories of immigration and integration by highlighting diverse stories of transition, settlement, and belonging. This series tells the stories of newcomers living, working, and building their lives in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. The Living Library Project is a storytelling program of the New Canadian Centre. This radio podcast series is produced by the New Canadian Centre in partnership with Trent Radio and hosted by me, Jill Stavely. Launched in September 2018, the Living Library Project was established with the goal of sharing the diverse and compelling stories of newcomers through public speaking engagements. Since then, it has grown into a multimodal storytelling project. In this series, we bring you the stories of six newcomers living, working, and building their lives in Peterborough, Ontario. These are stories of home, belonging, loss, hope, community, and so much more. Cultivating Empathy in the Field, Experiences Supporting Newcomer Youth, Faye's Story. A passion for supporting newcomers, particularly youth, led Faye to a job at the New Canadian Centre right here in Peterborough and at the UNHCR in her native Malaysia. These experiences, combined with her personal immigrant story, have led Faye to become a passionate and empathetic advocate for youth. In this episode, Faye sheds light on what she's learned and how it's changed her. Welcome. Could you please introduce yourself to us? My name is Faye Shanten, and um, I'm from Malaysia. I've been in Canada since 2007, August 31st. I first came to um, Canada to study at Trent University, and I did psychology and sociology. Could you tell us a little about Malaysia? Yeah. So Malaysia is um, located in Southeast Asia. It's a very hot and humid country because we are on the equator. The average temperature is around like 26 degrees. It's either rain or shine. And we have really, really good food. I think one thing I miss most is definitely the food. All my family is back in Malaysia. I'm pretty much here on my own in Peterborough, Canada. You say that you miss the food. When you think of home or you think of a meal that you ate with your family, what's something that comes to mind? Wow. Okay. So I do have to say that Malaysia is very ethnically diverse as well. We have the Malay people, the ethnically Chinese people, and the ethnic Indian people. So it's kind of really hard to pinpoint exactly a specific food because I find that Malaysian food has become such a huge fusion of the different different backgrounds. There's lots of spicy food. We use a lot of coconut milk because ethnically I'm Chinese. So I actually do enjoy my local ethnic ethnic food. Yeah. When you first came to Canada to be a student at Trent University, mm-hmm. what were your first few years like here as an international student? Well, as I've said before, Malaysia was hot and humid. So it was my first experience of winter when I came to Canada. I've never seen snow. And I think one of the hardest thing was definitely the weather. I remember sitting in my dorm in December, wondering why I'm so upset. <laughs> And I didn't know about seasonal affective disorder. And I think, yeah, that was, that was quite a challenge. Just getting used to the, the extreme, to me, was an, what was an extreme goal. I involved myself a lot with uh, clubs and groups. Um, it's just basically being busy with academic stuff and just participating as much within the trend community. Although I have to say I was very much in my little bubble. 
because I was an international student, um, I hang out with the Trent International Program a lot with other international students, and I was not as much out there within the community. It was only after I graduated that I start to participate more in what the Peterborough community has to offer. Why do you think that the international students or the Trent International Program felt like a bubble? Like, what kept you separated from the Peterborough community? Um, I think, first of all, it was a really huge change in terms of culture. I feel that when I was hanging out with other international students, it it kind of gives me a sense of belonging. Um, I feel that people have the same experiences as I do. At that time, it, it felt safe. Um, and I felt that people understood me. And they understand the, the changes that I'm going through, the experience of learning, learning something new. For example, like taking the bus. Back home in Malaysia, you can just easily flag a bus down on the street, but that's not quite what you can do here. <laughs> um, just little things that if you've been in a country for a long time, you kind of take for granted how is it like for a newcomer to be in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So the great thing about the Trent International Program was um, uh, they do match you up with um, other fellow uh, Malaysians from your own country. Uh, when I first arrived, I knew who the, who the Malaysian students were. Right. And it was just really nice. At least you could share experience yeah. and share food. <laughs> and they would give you all the tips and advice on like, oh, okay, you want um, Malaysian spices? This is where you get it. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And it's just somebody to, who kind of kind of have your back. Even like some other st- older students who have cars, they would give me rides. Right. They would teach me how to take the bus, what kind of coats to buy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you first came, it's, it's just so many questions that you have, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the things that you don't think about if you already know the answers to. So having, having access to other people who have just gone through that transition... Absolutely. Um, even things like healthcare. Um, how would I know when I get sick in Malaysia, the first thing you do is just go into any clinic, which are private. But in Canada, it's, very, it's a very different healthcare system. So it's just having to navigate the Canadian system. It's a huge learning process, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You started working at the New Canadian Centre after graduating from Trent University. What was it that drew you to work with immigrants and refugees? So basically, it's, it's, it pretty much started off that it is my own experience as a newcomer to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that I know how it feels, the challenges that newcomers face. And I think most importantly is the fact that through my school years here, university life here in, in, in Peterborough, I have received so much kindness from fellow Canadians. And I think it's only when you are on your own away from your family, that's when you really come to appreciate how basically a stranger's help would mean so much to you. And to me, it's so much about giving back to society. It's giving back this kindness that has been passed on to me to other people who are also new to Canada. Because I realize what is it that they need. So I feel that I can give the same help and just pass it on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of work were you doing when you first started at the NCC? Uh, so I started off as a receptionist. At that time, my language abilities were useful. <laughs> so I do speak three languages uh, besides speaking English. I am also fluent in Malay and Mandarin Chinese. So what was useful here was Mandarin Chinese, yeah, because we do have um, newcomers from China. And that was definitely useful in, in a way in helping me 
gain yeah. gain work at NCC. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also um, uh, having that language, the extra language ability is also it makes people who cannot speak English feeling a lot better, right? Like because yes. we we do have like I I know of many clients who. Are not fluent in English, but can only speak Mandarin, and you you kind of you kind of see that they they feel a sense of relief. It's like oh, finally someone yeah. who understands me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it's huge. It's huge. Like language barrier has always been the one of the big, basically the biggest barrier mm-hmm. when it comes to integrating in society. Well, and especially mm-hmm. in a town like like Peterborough, mm-hmm. there's not. I mean, it's mostly you know in in a bilingual country, mm-hmm. it's mostly English that's available. And it's it's very easy to feel left out, yeah. or not included, right. or afraid to try and figure out how to access day to day resources. So yeah. the relief that that you must have brought, you could probably see it, yes, in people's yes. eyes. Yeah, you know. Yep. So you started off working as a receptionist yes. at the NCC. Can you tell us about what your work involves now? At the NCC? So um, my current title is the Salmon Worker in Schools. Um, so uh, Salmon Worker in Schools is a Swiss worker. So as a Swiss worker, I basically go into the different schools, both elementary and high schools. This Swiss program has partnership with both KPR and PVNC, which is uh, the Kowala Primary District Public School Board and the Peterborough Victoria Northumberland Catholic District School Board. So what we do is we go into the schools that has newcomer families. Once those families are identified, we would contact the families and basically see what kind of settlement needs they require. A lot of my work is along the Lakeshore area, which is from Brighton all the way up till uh, Curtis along the Lakeshore. Okay. And what, what we found is that there are little pockets of newcomers within those areas. And we find that a lot of those newcomers are very isolated because there's not as much services available in those areas. And again, like we talk about how challenging it is to navigate the Canadian system when you're in a new country. And it's even harder when there is it's there is the ex- additional barrier of not having people from your own culture or other newcomers to assist you as well. Right. So that's where I find that our job is really helpful, where we identify the families and kind of just help them to like, okay, uh, you need to get your health card. So this is where you go, Service Ontario. Like, yeah. SIN number, what is federal, what is provincial, um, basically help them explain what the uh, Canadian, the Ontario education system is like. So things we take for granted, such as like high school credits. Right. How high school is in Malaysia is very different from high school here is in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And also things like kids program, um, daycare system, all those things that it is actually very challenging for people to to navigate. Yeah, like a waiting list, a daycare waiting list, subsidies. Mm-hmm. So all those little things that we we assist parents in helping right. to figure things out as yeah. they kind of build their life here. Because there are challenging systems enough when yeah. you speak English. Absolutely. When you've, when you've watched it happen. Before. Yeah. And also, um, a lot of parents have that additional burden of having to find a job right away. Right. And for them, is also, how do you write a Canadian-style resume? What's the interview process like? So yeah. you, have, you have a wealth of knowledge then. You're, you have a, a general idea of a lot of different resources that the families would need, or, or would you be connecting them with other people to help them 
complete their resume or to figure out how to, mm-hmm. you know, navigate some some system. So basically, we do a lot of uh, information referral process. Okay. Like we do have an in-house employment counselor in the New Canadian Centre, but in in other places like Brighton, we definitely do referrals to other employment material agencies. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's mainly. It's mainly information referral, but also part of my job is to know that these are the services available within the area yeah. for me to refer them to. Um, sometimes we do go to appointments with the youth or with parents yeah. um, just to help them take that step in accessing that services. And for the Swiss program, we also run um, like a youth group. So here in Peterborough, two of the biggest schools that have a lot of newcomer uh, youth is Thomas A. Stewart and St. Pete's right. because they have the... English as second language class. So uh, we do go into the schools during during lunch break just to meet with the kids and see how they're doing, if they have questions, um, do they need volunteering opportunities, do they have questions about like the timetable. So one thing that we also, we work very closely with school, school teachers, like the guidance counsellors um, in helping our youth pick the right subjects mm-hmm. and basically help them with their education goals. Uh, it's basically a law partnership with the school. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that the students connect with you or do they treat you just like an administrator? What's your relationship like with the students who you work with? So it definitely, relationship building with um, the youth is definitely a huge part of our job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, like we have a, we have many Syrian students right now and I don't speak Arabic. Right. So that is a challenging part for me. But again, kindness is a language that everyone understands. Mm-hmm. You just have to make the effort to just, you know, start talking, <laughs> right? Communicate and communication can go in so many ways and like simple English words, lots of hand gestures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we all have to start start off that way. And once they're comfortable with us, and that's when they start opening up on what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Takes time. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I love that though. Kindness is the language that everyone understands. <laughs> so you've told me about all of this amazing work that you've done with the NCC, uh, almost a 10-year career to passionately support and advocate for newcomers, especially newcomer youth. Can you tell me why it is so important to you to support newcomer youth? It's it's a very difficult time, mm-hmm. um, especially at that age. Fitting in is definitely one of the biggest challenges that we mm-hmm. find with a lot of youth here. It's, for example, like when I see adults, one of their main goals is, okay, learn English, get a job, earn lots of money, right. or as much to be able to support their family. Yeah. Um, but if someone who is coming in say at 14, 15, going into high school without without language, without English proficiency, that is very, very challenging, right? It's already hard for Canadian-born students to navigate high school, yep. <laughs> let alone not speaking the same language, not sharing the same kind of music tastes, movies, celebrities, or read the same books, like, how do you even fit in? How do you feel that you can fit in or belong to this culture, yeah. right? It's having to learn that language and also having to learn culture. So I, I think there is that additional challenge. And on top of that, there's all these hormones yeah. <laughs> that youth are going through. And I do find that working with youth, it's also a very 
it's more of a longer term process. Mm-hmm. I find that when I work with adults, if they have a couple of questions, you kind of like help them navigate the system, and they're like, okay, got it, yeah, move on. But with youth, it's it's more of a um, process, like a pro, it's a progressive thing. Yeah. It's like okay, today we've selected your courses. Few months later, they have other questions in terms of like, okay, what kind of activities, and you you kind of see them grow. Yeah. And do you feel mm-hmm. responsible for their success? Well, I because investing mm-hmm. in young people is mm-hmm. um, it's from the heart, mm-hmm. and and you carry a lot with you while you know that that they have to do the work. You must feel some type of responsibility for whether or not they are able to integrate into their community and pick the right classes? I think it's important that, like, so yes, In to answer your question, yes. It's a very, I think it's natural that we take on that responsibility. We feel that we are responsible for it. Although longer time within this job, it kind of made me feel that it's, sometimes you get disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's kind of hard try to not take it Personally, yeah. I think it's it's understand that yes, we've given our best, and sometimes maybe it just takes a little longer time, <laughs> or to also see that for certain youth, you hope for the best, you try to ar- arrange or you try to you kind of think that okay, this might be a good pathway for them, but then you realize they are not ready yet. Right. So then we need to just okay take a step back and reorganize. Yeah. Yeah. Because the pathway to education for a lot of these kids are very different because a lot of them may have gaps in education or may have never had any education. So they all have very different pathways. And I think as a worker is to be realistic of our own expectations. Yeah. Yeah. So in a Swiss position, we don't really deal specifically in terms of like the education as in as in there are pathways that we kind of show them to, but we don't teach them like English or anything, right? Um, we focus a lot also on things that is outside the education. Like, okay, we know that what happens in the family at home affects how well students do in school. Yeah. So we try to address those issues too. Like, are they doing well at home? Um, does our parents working? Um, do they have enough food? So those are things that that we also support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if they do have like questions like English, then we make sure that we communicate that with the English teachers. That yeah. oh, okay, to address those issues. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2014, you moved back to Malaysia to work for the UNHCR. Can you tell me what the UNHCR is and what they were doing in Malaysia at that time? Okay, yes. So the UNHCR is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So in 2014, I went home to because I want to spend time with my family. And I took on a one-year contract with the UNHCR. And at that time, the UNHCR in Malaysia, we are mainly working on the Rohingya crisis. So UNHCR is, is huge in countries where it's usually what we call kind of like a transitional country. For example, like with the current crisis, like Turkey, Lebanon, even Malaysia. So basically any country where refugees fled to 
to stay temporarily in hoping that they would either resettle to go to a different country such as USA or Canada, mm-hmm. or they would stay in that temporary country until their home country is safe to return to. Right. So that's where UNHCR is pretty much large. They're working. Yes, so uh, Malaysia does not officially recognize refugee. Can you explain that? Yes. So this means that anyone, any person who flees their country because there's a threat towards their life based on race, religion, or the government, their own government is not able to protect them. Right. And they come to a country like Malaysia. But Malaysia would see these refugees as someone who is illegal. Okay. So basically, Malaysia does not give them an official status. So basically, that's what it means. They, they, uh, Malaysia has not signed a convention with the United Nations to basically officially recognize that refugee has rights okay. within the country. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of implications are there? It's huge. Basically, if you are a refugee in Malaysia, you cannot go to public school. There's, yeah, <laughs> cannot, you have no access to public school, um, very limited access to public health care. Right. Almost no access to legal work. So a lot of the work that refugees do are pretty much under the table. Mm-hmm. Where it's just cash and and when, when it comes to under table job there is a lot of um you have no rights. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that is a huge issue. That's why in so many ways that that's why we say it's a transitional period for the refugees in Malaysia. So the UNHCR role in Malaysia, it's to ensure that these refugees are registered with the United Nations and they get like a status. In a way, they have a refugee card. Right. And once they're in the system, the UN system, they will be put on like a list. If they're eligible to resettle, then right. they will come to countries like Canada or the States. So... The United Nations is not funded by the Malaysian government. Right. It's very much independent of uh, government funding from Malaysia. But also because they are in Malaysia, they have to, in so many ways, work very closely with the Malaysian government. Mm-hmm. So I think firstly, we, we, we should ask how do the Rohingyas or how do refugees come into Malaysia? Mm-hmm. So the Rohingya refugees uh, come from a neighboring country called Myanmar. Mm-hmm. So many of them would have either came by foot through the north of Malaysia, which is Thailand, mm-hmm. and walk into through the jungles and come into the Malaysian border, or they would have come by boat. So that's where where we call the boat people crisis, right. where you have like a small boat that is filled with hundreds of people, and many people would die yeah. in transit coming to to a country. So once the boat arrived in Malaysia, well, sometimes they might manage to arrive somewhere where there is no coast guards. So then they might make it and then they try to, and at the border, they claim refugee. But it's really hard for for the Malaysian government to just turn them away. Right. Well, they can. They can leave them stranded yeah. <laughs> on water, yeah. but that's not really good for yeah. um, national um, reputation. For their international reputation. Mm-hmm. So what it is that 
because Malaysia also in some ways have an agreement with the UNHCR, they said like, fine, we will not turn them away, but we'll keep them in Malaysia. But this stay is only temporary Okay. while they resettle. When we look at where, where we are here and, and, you know, resettling newcomers to Canada in, in this space, actually the journey that many of them have, have come along to get to this point. And, and the importance of the work that, that you do, not only in like language and building resumes, but just understanding. Yes. So if you do like, do look at our, well, this is in generally the, the system here in Canada, we are really only bothering the United States. So refugees, if they could either fly into Canada and claim status, or they would have walked through the uh, Canadian border. But it's very difficult, unlike in Europe, where a whole mass of refugees would be able to cross the country by foot. Right. So um, I would say most of our Syrian um, refugees would have came through the um, the United Nations UNHCR program. Right. Yeah. But there's also a lot who are privately sponsored. Yeah. So how long can uh, do do refugees stay in this transitional period? I have to say some that I've through experience I know that some people were born in transitional countries or born in refugee camps and may just also die in refugee camps. There's so many refugee camps worldwide right. and being resettled to a different country it's actually a very rare opportunity. Yes, most of refugees do not get resettled. Yeah. They might stay in the camp their entire life, have a family, have children. They basically have a life that they live in within the camps. Right. Themselves, yeah. So when we see mm-hmm. refugees being resettled in Canada and we see the mm-hmm. tens of thousands numbers from the government, it feels like a lot, but it's not. No. No, it's like just a drop in the bucket. Absolutely. Right. What made you want to work with Rohingya refugees? Initially, when I applied for the position, well, my my goal back then was to spend to spend one year home. And I was looking, okay, what kind of job would best fit me? And I'm already being in this field in Canada. Mm-hmm. So the way I see it, Canada is this resell place. So it's where the, ooh, it's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to know what is before that. Yeah. So that is when I applied to the UN and be like, okay, so this is the transitional period. So this is how re- what refugees have to go to before they get resettled. So it's wanting to learn about the experience. And in terms of like why the Rohingya, it's just, it just so happened that is the crisis that was happening at that time is um, that Myanmar was going through a, a civil unrest. Yeah. Most of our uh, refugees at that time were Rohingyas, but it's not just them. There were other, there were even Palestinians. Right. Um, and yeah, minor, minor pockets here and there, yeah. but mainly the Rohingyas are the big group. Yes. And it, it was a very severe situation. I believe at this time, they're still trying to find a solution where would they be able to return to Myanmar? Right. Um, or where, where, where are they going to be placed? Where, where can they be? Can you tell me what a typical day working as your role with the UNHCR looked like? My position when I was at the UN 
is I was in the child protection unit. So what we do is um, I work with a group which we call the unaccompanied minors and separated children. So unaccompanied minors is basically defined as children who are under the age of 18 who does not have their parents with them or any brothers, sisters with them as they come into Malaysia. Whereas separated minors, they don't have um, their parents, but they do have, say, older brothers and sisters or other relatives that's kind of able to give that support. So as you can imagine, <laughs> unaccompanied minors have a very different needs than adults. So what we do on a, on a daily basis is once we identify who the unaccompanied minors are, I would do interviews with them. And this interview is done through an interpreter. We don't often see very, very young ones. The youngest I've done interviews with was about 12, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and if you come to think about it, it's actually really sad to have a 12 years old being entirely on his own in a country without anybody else. So I do one-on-one interviews and the whole purpose is to basically just kind of get a little bit of their background story. Just asking why you're here, um, where your family is, and are you currently living with somebody or do you have any... So basically what is their care arrangement like at this point? Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they might be living with other fellow villages or other f- friends who are adults who might be looking after them, then we'll just be like, okay, maybe that's a suitable place. Otherwise, we were thinking about places like shelters that's available. Or, and then we will also look at, do they have any current medical needs? One thing that we find is because a lot of the Rohingya refugees come by boats into Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And they spend many days on these boats. And many of the time is without any food and very limited water. And a lot of them have a lot of health conditions. And one of these health conditions is called beriberi, where it's a vitamin B deficiency, where they don't have strength in their legs and it's like very difficult for them to walk. Sometimes we also visit work sites. And when I talk about work sites, I mean restaurants, construction sites. As I may have already mentioned, um, a lot of rules are not very regulated in Malaysia. Um, So you get a lot of perhaps a little older, maybe like 15, 16, 17-year-old youth Mm -hmm. who are working under the table in construction sites because manual labor. So basically things that's manual labor and work that other Malaysians do not want to do. I would visit work sites and find that, you know, a 15-year-old is living in a one-bedroom apartment with 15 other adult men. And... To figure out, okay, is this is this a right place for you? Can we can you can we move you somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Would you go to a shelter? And basically, same thing, trying to figure out their needs. But it's quite a bleak. The way I see it, it's, it's the feeling is very. I can't describe. It's a very bleak feeling mm-hmm. because for a lot of them, if they are sixteen, they feel that their option is to is to work. Right. It's like I need money. I need money to survive. Or I need money to be able to send home to my family back in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And they're that young and they have a heavy responsibility on their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So interviews. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still just processing, you know. You mm-hmm. think um, 
you said sometimes you would you'd find a youth you know you would check out the work site and mm-hmm. you know that you know trying to see how how safe or unsafe mm-hmm. it, it might be but there's not a lot of of options there's not a lot of alternatives and sometimes checking their living spaces where they are living with 15 other people but that you said there was also shelters available is the shelter system safe would it be a better option than living with 15 other people? I mean, I guess trying to weigh those right. options. So shelter spaces are very limited. So again, because these shelters are not government funded, okay. they're pretty much run by religious groups, mm-hmm. nonprofit organizations, and because there's also a lot of young people right. in a sense that I feel that a lot of these shelters are a joint combination of refugee children's school. So these schools are meant for children who does have parents in Malaysia. So they, these refugee parents would send their kids to, to a school that is run by a non-profit agency. And then these religious groups or non-profit groups would find that, hey, you know, if we do have unaccompanied minors, why don't we open a separate shelter where the kids can stay here and go to school in the school that we've already set up for. Right. So I would say spaces are limited because mm-hmm. if it's a non-profit or if it's a religious organization, sometimes it's mainly run by volunteers mm-hmm. or, yeah. And also understand that if they are around like 16 or 17, we find that a lot of them don't really want to be in the shelters. They don't really like, to them it's like, why, why am I going to school? Like, there's no point. I, I need to work. Mm-hmm. I'm at an age where I need to work on money. It is the younger ones, around 12, 13. We, we tell them, we try to tell them, hey, you might get resettled to the States. You want to improve your English. So it's, yeah. it's easier for you when, you when you go there. You have a better future. So we find that it's easier to put a 12, 13, 14-year-old in shelter than it was to try to convince a 16, 17 to go to a shelter. Yeah. yeah. It's heartbreaking. Um, yeah, I have to say, um, in my work, I have to say, after, after almost a year into when I was about to finish my job, sometimes you can get, I can see why people get a bit jaded in the job. Mm-hmm. It's, there's just so many, so many, so many people who need help. And it's quite unlike here in my work in Peterborough, where you recognize everybody by their names. First names, last names, you know who they are, mm-hmm. how old are they, who their family are. Yeah. But when you are working with the UN, it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that just comes, come in and out every single day. That I remember, it's, we remember people by their file number. Right. Yeah. It gets very non-personal yeah. already. And it was, it was very hard. It was a very hard transition for me to coming from a workplace in somewhere as amazing as New Canadian here in Peterborough community to something as structural and bureaucratic as a large organization like United Nations. Yeah. yeah. So of these hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who you would see mm-hmm. every day and you were there mm-hmm. for a year, you said? I was there for a year. A year. Um, but I do only, on average, I do interviews only up to like five, six people in a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any that, that you remember that you had a special experience with? So I have two youth that I kind of, I would say, follow on social media. So um, to me, these are what I call uh, success stories. So within my year, I interviewed them and I kind of see them and I put them into shelter. And then 
I was there as they were leaving to get resettled to uh, the States. So at this wow. point, uh, the, the United States has um, might be the only country actually that has an organized unaccompanied minor program. So Canada does not generally take it unaccompanied minors unless they have relatives here. So, right. um, so they would mainly go to the States. And I kind of gave my email address to one of these youth and told him, when you get there, you can show this to your worker. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. And I, to me, that was such a great feeling. I, I just kind of gave him my email. I did not th- think anything about it. I was like, oh, maybe it might be lost in transit. <laughs> yeah. And then he emailed me and be like, hi, I'm in the States right now. And following him, his progress on Facebook was a really great feeling seeing that from a kid who, when I first saw did not speak any English at all. Right. To right now, I believe he might have just about to graduate high school. Um, but he, he, he had pictures of him graduating elementary school. And he yeah. had all these certificates, all these medals. And he was this, I remember he was this like this small little scrawny kid, totally, under, like, totally malnourished and yeah. to this like tall boy. Yeah. yeah, he goes work out at the gym. He was showing pictures of him at the gym, and just having all these like spelling medals. It just it feels really good. It just shows me that that if given the opportunity, any anyone really anyone can progress and be successful. It's just that these these kids' life has changed so much since I f- first saw him. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think this in in so many ways is part of my motivation yeah. is saying like wow okay I have a part to play in this and this is how my little bit of work had helped him to come this far but also recognizing that it's so many people's work along the way well and I think the the biggest work of all is having enough people tell that kid that they're worth the effort so that they don't give up on themselves you know if you have every single person that that kid comes across of the same type of attitude that you do and willing to put the same type of investment in mm-hmm. as a human being, it's important to believe in yourself and it's hard to do that if the people around you don't. And it's, yeah. it's much easier to believe it's true when people are willing to, to invest in you and to take a chance on you. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So this idea of investing in the people around us and in investing in ourselves and our community, I think it's really important. Were there any other big takeaways that you had from the experiences that, that you had working with the UNHCR in Malaysia and working with, with these youth? Well, I, I think I would just come back to, to reinforcing the fact that one thing that I've really, really learned and could see through my experience is, especially when it comes to youth, is how resilient these youth can be. It's the will for someone to survive, like for a young kid to to survive. Is like, okay, they have their basic needs met. And then to them is, okay, how else do I continue on my journey? Improving, improving my language. And it's just the same way that you see our youth here in Canada. Many of them come here without much language, but they, they are picking up the language the best they could. Right, integrating and participating in, in society, participating in school events, school projects. 
And and I think that's the satisfying thing too, working with youth is is you see that progress. You see like, oh, you can speak English too. Yes, now I'm working at Tim Hortons. <laughs> wow. So it's that resilience, right? Like the fact that you know they've been through so, so much. They've been through all of that fleeing the home country, having to deal with like smugglers. It's that process and the fact that they've probably in throughout their journey seen, pe- seen people die, seen, seen families being abused, beaten, lose people along the way. They themselves might have gone through a lot of like difficulties. And the fact is that they survive all of that and are still willing to continue their journey. And being in Canada, I see that, oh, it doesn't end, right? Like my job at UN, once someone resettles to another country, whew, that is the, that's the end goal. It's like, great, happily ever after. But when I come to Canada, that's when I see, well, yes, second part, the middle journey ended, but here is a new beginning of an entire new life. Yeah. And it, it doesn't end. You just have to keep on going. And it, is it easier? Uh, yes and no. No, sometimes not really, right? It can be, it's a different kind of challenge. Now that you have all your basic needs met, then you have that other needs need, needs to be met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's the resilience of the human spirit, I think, that really is very motivational. Yeah. And what a wonderful experience for you to see the next step, to actually yes. be part of the next step now and to... Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Like I've I've spoken to my uh, my colleagues back home in the UN about this before. They've always wondered like, oh, how was it like once they are resettled? So I think I feel very fortunate to be able to see those those experiences, those transition. Mm-hmm. When I was in Malaysia, I was also had the experience to 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 do detention release. So basically, once they arrive at the border, the Malaysian government would detain them and put them in detention hole. So not, the UN's job is to go to these detention centers and to get them out of detention or jail and get them out of there and to basically make sure they have proper arrangements. And it's from that very first step, I was able to see them and how they make their progress along the way. That's You spend a lot of time working to help other newcomers and you've talked about your past experiences. And I think this idea... That's been a thread through the work that you've done is this idea of of belonging. You know, maybe where mm-hmm. do people belong? How do people belong? How do they get there? What does, what does belonging mean to you? What does it mean to belong in your community? Yeah. Besides my job, this is even, this can even be a very, a very personal question for myself too, as a newcomer. I mean, as an immigrant, no longer very new. <laughs> I feel that a sense of belonging is very tight besides to a physical space, it's also to the people around you. In the past, my sense of belonging was was at home, right? Being with my family, being in this environment called Malaysia, <laughs> the weather. Yeah. And I asked myself that question, what is keeping me here? Keeping What is keeping me here in Peterborough, Canada to the fact that I don't have any family members here? What makes it like, what makes me happy living here? And then when I think about it, it's like, it's, it's the people. It's absolutely the importance of feeling that feeling of being welcome, 
of being able to be who I am in this place mm-hmm. that gives me that strong sense of belonging. That yes, I am welcome here. Yes, my presence in this space is very much appreciated, and I do feel that it can be challenging for a lot of people who, who when I say that when they're in a transitional period, is very challenging. For example, um, people like the refugees who are in Malaysia, they may not feel welcome. And that sense of belonging is really hard. Mm-hmm. And it's just like if they come to a country in Canada, and they don't feel accepted by the community, or they don't feel accepted in school, then that sense of belonging is very hard to you. It's very hard to feel that feel that sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And hence, I feel it's very very important that why the community work is very important to help make this happen for not just newcomers, for for anyone to feel that they have their own space. In the fall of 2018, you began sharing your story through the NCC's Living Library Project. What has that experience been like for you, and why is it important for you to share your story with our community? I think it's very important that our stories are heard, is um, because as an immigrant or as a newcomer, we bring our own life experiences, and I think it's adding to the community. And it's also through these life experience, these lived experiences, that I believe that the community can better understand what our needs are, and also how to better help newcomers integrate into society. I mean, it has to be a it has to be a two way street, yeah. right? Newcomers adapting, integrating into new culture, and the the local culture find ways to accept and welcome newcomers. And it is true stories and understanding the needs that that can happen. Well, I would, um, I'd like to thank you so much for for sharing your ideas mm-hmm. and for sharing your story with us today. I think the work that, that you do not only contributes to your own belonging in this space to carve mm-hmm. out a spot for you, but, but it welcomes a lot of other people in. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that you do that work in our community. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's a pleasure. The music used in this series was taken from local musician Evan Sheffield's album, White Rhino, featuring samples from the track, White Owl.
Thank you.